This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All righty, welcome everyone. We're happy to have all of you here. A few people are coming in. There's more seats in the front here. Come and join us. Are you excited to talk about conflict in music? This is always a hot topic. We'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be starting with the discussion on, on uh, some questions on how to deal with conflict in music, but we won't, uh, we won't limit the questions to just that topic as we go on. If you're texting in questions, it's okay to extend that to beyond other areas around music. Um, I apologize if we don't get to all of your questions. Uh, some questions may be better just to come up to us afterwards and we can share uh, if you're looking for resources or something like that, uh, we may not address that in the panel, but don't, don't, you know, feel free to come up and we will chat with you after if we didn't get to your question during the panel. Um, I hope the screen is pretty self-explanatory. Text your questions in. Uh, they're coming in right here. I can see them as they come in and we'll try, to, we'll try to answer them. I may summarize some questions. If I see multiple questions that are similar, I may summarize it uh, to, to uh, accommodate multiple people asking similar questions. And, oh yes, still got chairs up here, guys. Plenty of chairs up front, scattered all through here. Come on up, welcome, welcome. Uh, Really quick, I just wanted to mention this book, The Music of Heaven by John Thurber. This is a book that we, several of us in the committee have used as we have been studying this and preparing for the seminar. I just wanted to share this book with you. I forgot to mention it yesterday. It's a very good practical book. Uh, It's an older book, but it's straightforward, practical, has lots of principles if you're looking for a good resource. Uh, I would find it on Amazon. That's the only place I could find it. There may be other places. If someone knows it's a better place, please let me know. Um, I found it on Amazon. So feel free to come and take a picture of the front afterwards if you'd like. The Music of Heaven by John Thurber. I borrowed heavily from that book uh, yesterday. All right. So, introduce our panel. Would you guys just go through your name, uh, what musical instrument you play, or instruments? Okay, my name is Ariel Hinkle. Um, My predominant instrument, I guess, would be voice, but I also play piano and guitar. My name is James Cleveland. Um, I play the violin and some piano. And I also sing once in a while. I'm Pastor Doug Batchelor. And um, I sing. I play guitar, violin, flute, piano. I just haven't found anyone to listen yet. Uh, my name is Annie Moretta, and I play violin, um, I sing, and just a tiny bit of piano. So. Amen. My name is Caleb Gensler. I, I play guitar, and I sing, and just a tiny bit of piano. And uh, we're, uh, we're glad to have you with us, Pastor Doug. I hope that was a surprise to you guys. Um, we're excited to have you with us. This will be fun. 
All right, our first question. Uh, can the panel share a couple of personal examples where you have had to deal with conflict around music and how you dealt with those situations? That's a good point. Thank you, James. Let's start with prayer. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the music you've created for us to enjoy and to praise you with. We ask you to be with us now as we discuss this important topic and how to, uh, how to better handle when we don't know how to agree on music. Help us to understand your will in this matter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Personal examples of where you've had to deal with conflict in music and how you dealt with that. probably all have something. Who do you want to start? <laughs> okay, I'll begin. Um, when I was, I didn't have to deal with this personally, but I felt the effects of this encounter. Uh, I think we might be able to get a discussion going with this example. Um, we had a group, a group come to Fountain View Academy to do a concert one time. And I was a student at the time. My dad at the time was directing the music department at Fountain View and of course, it was under his jurisdiction to kind of decide, you know, what they were going to perform. And I remember I got out of class, and I was on a class break. I walked into the auditorium, and they were doing rehearsal. And I don't know, you just know by the kind of music they're playing that that's just not the kind of music that we would be doing at Fountain View. And it was kind of awkward because I was like, oh, snap. Like, are they going to do that at the concert tonight? And I remember talking to Dad at lunch, and he was... Told us, told us how he went through all the songs and how he had told them, you know, you can't do this one, this one, this one, but you, you're going to have to just, you know, make up a concert out of these ones that, that I feel are right. And, and it's not because he was passing moral judgment upon them, but it was just like we had a standard at Fountain View to uphold and we had to go through all the songs and decide. And I'm going to be honest with you, that was super awkward because you don't want to like offend people by saying, no, we don't want this song, like, because it was a good song and they could do it well. I'm sure they'd done it many places and done it well, but it just, yeah, there was a standard. We, we upheld it and it was awkward. That's my experience with it. <laughs> um, I have a story that doesn't exactly, it didn't happen in a church setting, but we were practicing a small group in college and one of our good friends, who's a very talented pianist, was playing and we had um, an individual who was on campus at the time come in, and he had just been converted. He was still kind of an interesting character, very sincere, but um, and started talking about how, brother, the Lord has like led us, and I'm going to work with you. And he starts doing spoken word, like hardcore rapping, and we're all like, okay. And I was, I like look at our friend who was like leading us out. I'm like, I hope he deals with this because I don't know how to deal with this. But something that was really interesting that my friend did is he didn't say, you know what, actually, we don't agree with that. Like, we're not going to do that. He just said he thanked him for being interested and thanked him for his desire to do ministry and um, just kind of left it at that. Like, he never said no, but he never said yes either. And eventually, and it didn't take very long, like, I think the individual understood and then but he didn't have hurt feelings either because we hadn't like told him no but we just said you know thank you like i appreciate that you're interested in doing this 
and God bless you kind of thing. And so that kind of just smoothed it over, and he wasn't pushy about it. So that's another thing. If someone's not, like, pushing, 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 but they just show an interest, you can just say, you know, I'm really glad you're interested in doing ministry, and um, I appreciate your sincerity, and then kind of just move on. And sometimes that works, too. It doesn't always, but in that situation, it did. I think when we're talking about music, uh, most people believe that there is good music and there's bad music. Uh, I do every now and then hear from a few people, I think some texted in questions, they think any music can be used to praise God. Music is neutral and any music could be used. That's the minority. Most people believe there is godly music and there is satanic music. Where the interest comes in is where do you draw the line? Uh, and everybody seems to draw the line differently. And how do you deal with the conflict where you're drawing the line in a different place with another believer? And um, just a, an example of you know where we encounter this in a church, of course, is a lot of people come and they want to share uh, their gifts or a message the Lord's given them, and we need to evaluate it based on a certain set of principles. And and sometimes we need to say, you know, we don't use tracks here, or um, that we don't think that's appropriate for the worship service. It might be at an evangelistic meeting. Um, uh, and just try not to hurt the person's feeling, but staying with the biblical principles. And so there's no limit to the different ways that those conflicts can manifest themselves. And then we have good people in the church. We have, even when our church in Sacramento or Granite Bay, that say, look, to avoid problems, we're just going to sing from the hymnal. And um, then we have other good people, and they're biblically right. They say the Bible says it's okay to sing a new song. Um, and so, but they're afraid that new song will be, you all know what a 7-Eleven song is. <laughs> so uh, one of the, the new uh, contemporary songs, it's just uh, almost like uh, a trance where you sing the same seven words 11 times. <laughs> So um, we just try to bring the church together theologically that, yeah, there's great theology in the hymns, but it's not a sin to sing a new song and have the new song people respect the hymn people and just keep everyone working together is a challenge. I think for us, so the key was balancing out. Um, we, I actually, okay, I have a lot of stories from high school, but um, in our high school, we actually were, I went to boarding school and we were transitioning from in the process of transitioning from those praise songs to more you know songs that had more content and songs that you know really had the message that we needed for um, our time and it was incredibly hard because everybody was like well you know why can't we do this that doesn't make sense like you know you're just banning christian music and you're just trying to be you know sort of thing but you know we in in that situation we just had to keep firm and the staff had to keep firm and at the end of the day, you know, a year later or several months later, um, the students found themselves loving the music. And um, they were kind of saying, I remember one of my friends saying to me, and she was, she was like, you know, I used to really love the music, the praise music that used to be out there. And we used to sing in, in, um, <clears throat> in worships. And, and now she says that when she sings those same songs, they just don't feel the same. Uh, it just feels like they're kind of just singing. There's really nothing, you know, coming out from the heart. There's no message that's coming out to the audience. So that's kind of uh, an effect for us of how we dealt with it. 
Hi, I'm William Guthrie. Just a member of the music department, and I had, anyway, some, somebody messed with my mouth, so I sound a little funny. But um, conflict in music. Um, this is a little, I don't think, probably not the intent of the question necessarily, but it's something that came to mind for me in my own experience is I've grown up in a family where we did a lot of music um, in the church and, you know, in all kinds of venues, and my parents really encouraged us they get paid for our lessons, you know, and did all this training over the years. And they encouraged us to use that for ministry. That was their intent. And um, But a lot of times, I can remember many Friday nights where we were um, trying to prepare for the special music the next day, and there was conflict. Um, and I can speak for myself, you know, I was, I don't think my heart was always in it, you know. Um, and I think that can come through in when we share music. Um, and I think over the years I've come to appreciate more the purpose of sharing music and that music, the message needs to come from the heart and your heart needs to be um, right before God. Um, or should I say he should be, he should be living in our heart um, when we share music. Otherwise, um, the whole the whole context of music can be thrown off. So I think that's another element. Um, working with other musicians, working with your family, working with whoever it is, um, to truly be seeking Christ and the Holy Spirit so that it's not um, a show. It's not, a, it's not about you as a musician. It's about um, what the Lord um, has laid on your heart to share with other people. Because honestly, the only message that people will resonate with is the message that the Lord has laid on your heart. Um, and as is the case with Balaam, even if your heart is not right with the Lord, the Lord can still speak through you. But um, how much better to have a heart that's right with God and to be able to let that message shine through. So, All right, our next question. Is there ever a time when it's okay to make small compromises in Christian music principles to maintain good working relationships with your friends and fellow musicians so that you can lead those friends and musicians to a better understanding of God's music later? Okay. So my feeling on this question is that a compromise shows that it really doesn't matter. And so if you're trying to show eventually, if you want to lead that person to a, a higher standard, if you compromise that standard yourself with the intent of someday trying to say, actually, this really is important, they're going to say, wait a second. But you proved to me that it isn't important because you were willing to compromise on it at the beginning. So I think it's very important for us to stand very firm to principle and to our standards and realize that you can uphold that standard in a godly and loving way that can still show that person that you care about them, but at the same time, show that it's really important. And then the fact that you stand firm to that will communicate to them that it's something important that they should stand for too. So I, I think I've 
maybe experience a little bit of this. We moved to a church, um, and the as is the case, typically when you move to a new church, um, there's an established way of doing things. Um, there's a lot of people there that kind of, and you may not, um, I think the question here is we need to, um, we need to understand what is righteous judgment and what is um, a personal, maybe better than thou, more righteous. Maybe there is a higher standard to reach. Um, maybe there is a higher calling, but we need to understand where people are in the journey, in their journey with God and in their experience. And so far as possible to live peaceably with all men and so far as possible in the, in the grace that God has given us, as Paul says, to be all things to all men. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not, and I'm in no way trying to contradict what Ariel has said here, but I do think there's a sense in which we need to approach these things prayerfully, um, because if you enter with a spirit into the, you know, if you, if you enter into an environment with a spirit of my way or the highway, and, you know, and you alienate these people because this is the way they've been doing music and they don't see any other way, um, you've not done any good for the cause of God at all. You've only made, you know, estrange these people and um i think i experienced a little bit of that mentality coming in you know it's like oh this is just hard to listen to you know but um as we've worked over the years with some of these people um it's amazing how the lord has worked i mean we've been able to play music in the community um and you know all kinds of different avenues that the lord has opened up and um in the end you know, the Lord is able to, I think, bring things together uh, when we're willing to work together as the body of Christ um, with people's varying levels of understanding. All right. Uh, this is, I'm going to ask two questions here, but they're very much related. How can I encourage non-musical pastoral staff and elders to stick to inspired musical guidelines. They seem to let everything pass as long as we have someone. And the follow-up, the other question is, Pastor Doug, how have you found music to be most... Let me find it here. How have you uh, been able to use music most effectively in your pastoral ministry? So let's start with the first one, and we can transition to the second one. How can we inspire non-musical pastoral staff to stick to inspired musical guidelines? If you'd like to, you're welcome to. Um, in our church, we found it saved us, uh, and this goes back to a small church I pastored, and then in Sacramento Central, uh, we developed a policy. We voted it. We had a music committee. We looked at the principles of music. It's so hard to know where to draw some of the lines. So we just came up with certain principles that we thought would save us. Um, and uh, once we had the music policy, we had the board voted. And then it became a decision of the church that we want the highest standard of music. We actually, the policy also included anyone singing. It had a dress code because some people came with a beautiful song 
but because uh, it, it was distracting because they weren't dressed appropriately. <laughs> so we just had, you know, whoever is bringing music in the church, here's the policy. And so whenever someone said, we've got a person that wants to come and sing or play or whatever, we said, great, we're glad to have you. Here's the policy. If they had a song, we would always, uh, a guest group, we'd say, we need to have a demo if you have a CD or something, because, you know, we need to be able to hear it. We don't like to find out just before, nothing's more awkward for a pastor. Just before you get up to preach, you often have the special music. And uh, I remember going to an evangelistic meeting where E.E. Uh, e. Cleveland was getting ready to speak at a camp meeting. And the, the music, just before he got up, I was there that day, the music before he got up was doubtful. And he got up and immediately he just looked at the audience. He said, it is amazing to me the things that some people call music. What he said. <laughs> but um, you don't want to have an awkward experience just before the sermon. <laughs> and, and so uh, it, it really helps to just have a policy. If the church votes it, then your elders and your deacons and everybody, you say, this is the policy that didn't fit with the policy. This is a church decision. And hopefully everyone can move together then. Oh, and that, what was the second question? The second question was, Pastor Doug, as a pastor and evangelist, how does music complement your ministry and how important is music to you? Well, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, while we're talking about music, we often gravitate towards what's the wrong kind of music. Uh, music is such a powerful thing. It's such a positive thing in worship, in praise, in, um, in evangelism. Uh, when the words... Um, of your message can also be put into song and be made into an appeal. Um, I think music has been very, very effective in um, breaking people out of depression. And when their hearts are stony and you make the appeal, um, it can just soften their hearts and, and have them respond. And so there's no limit of ways I could say that it's a, a blessing and a positive thing. And music, Ellen White said, is part of prayer. Many songs are a prayer. And so it's extremely important. Any other answers, answers to the first question? First question was, how can I encourage non-musical pastoral staff and elders to stick to inspired musical guidelines? They seem to let anything pass as long as we have something. Studying together and creating a guideline, that's a pretty good approach. Yeah, I think what Pastor Doug said is, Tremendous advice, because in terms of conflict, if you have something objective to look at, it helps so much. I know there's a, I'm in medical school, so I'll use a medical example, but there's, as everybody knows, there's an opioid epidemic in our country, you know, and I talked to this, or this ER physician was talking to us, and she's made it her policy not to prescribe any opioids in the ER, and that's, you know, that's her decision, um, unless you're like a terminally ill, you know, cancer patient or something, but in California, there's a registry of um, opioid prescriptions. So if you've been prescribed opioids, it'll show up in the registry under your name. So when somebody comes seeking them, she just simply goes and prints out the list and then brings that to them and says, well, here we have the list, you know. Let's, it looks like we have a problem. Let's deal with the problem here. And it becomes an objective truth for them. What could have become a very tense conflict situation becomes very diffused when you have something that everybody has decided on that is objectively true 
and that it's an issue that needs to be dealt with. So I think the music, you know, these, these principles apply. Yeah. Um, I had a situation in um, when I was doing a, a summer program, and um, we were doing evangelistic series, and we were. Ha I was personally as one of I was actually speaking for a Spanish church, and um, it was really hard to deal with because the people at that church they were you know they had a small church they didn't really have that much, and um, I would bring up stuff I would bring up issues and uh, or something that's like you know it would really be nice to have this sort of music because they had you know a different type of music that was playing and I was like you know for evangelistic series it'd be nice to have you know, at least some, some good hymns, some music that, you know, is, is going to actually complement the, the message. And um, I was faced with a bunch of problems, a bunch of people that were saying, well, you know, you're new here. You're not supposed to be telling us what to do. You know, we already have a church. It was, it was actually extremely hard, and the Lord had to humble me in a way. But um, so what I did was I began to bring people from different, the, the other students from the other programs, and inviting them to sing and to play and um, to have, you know, music that would... So I'd tell them, you know, well, song service today is going to be... I'd, I'd like these people to sing for song service before I speak. And um, as that began to go on, they began to realize that, you know, this music was actually really nice. And the, the audience, or the not the audience, but the congregation began to say, well... I like this music. I don't really, you know, want th that type of music to come on. And so I wasn't really telling them, oh, we can't have that music. We, I really don't, you know, I did tell one of the elders, but um, by having that example, by having someone come over, it actually began to resolve on its own. <laughs> so that kind of leads to our next question. How do you deal with cultural issues in music? How can we find a balance between godly but being sensitive to cultural differences. Um, I think it's a myth that once you cross into another culture, the principles are different. Uh, the principles for music are the same around the world. If you're in... Uh, America and you want to put a baby to sleep with a lullaby, you usually sing, you know, Brahms, what is that, you know, <laughs> something gentle. Um, if you're going to lead soldiers to war, there are war songs, marching songs. They're going to be similar in many countries. You don't sing a war song to a baby in India or Africa or... There are romantic songs. The Bible even has one called the Song of Solomon. Uh, you don't sing romantic songs to soldiers when they're going out on the battlefield. <laughs> uh, but you'll find the principles of those songs and the styles and how those songs move, you can easily discern those in any country of the world. You'll know right away, this is a song that'll put a baby to sleep. You don't want that just before the sermon. And, or this is a song that's supposed to, you know, work people up into a frenzy before they go to battle. And, and then there are diabolical songs that are, it, it's a hypnotic. They you know, put people into a trance. And they have those in all different cultures. And it's the same principles of music you're going to recognize. So there may be uh, different instruments. You may play a sitar in India and a guitar in California. 
But uh, the principles of the songs and the music are going to be the same. I think one thing we can think about is when we talk about cultural music, you think about where music even comes from. And I think two extreme examples is United States. Our music comes from Europe. It really does. I mean, we have the Western music. Well, what does Western music mean? It's a conglomerate of a lot of different ideas coming from the West. You know, we have the... Um, the Renaissance era brought in a lot of new kind of musics, and they had the Baroque period and the, and then the Romantic period. All these kinds of music were brought to America when, you know, when the, the pilgrims traveled across. But, and the thing is, then you have to remember why did the pilgrims come across? They were, this was a religious, you know, a religious expedition, and so they brought with them religious music. I believe, of course, they brought with them their the cultural you know, gigs and stuff that Bach had written and that kind of thing, you know, and we have classical music in North America. Well, it's a very developed country and it's a very, praise God, it's still a Christian country. But, and so when we go across to like, say, Africa and you want to do, you know, a, if you want to do a song service in Africa, they have hymns over there too. I could tell you that much. They have their own hymnal. They have their own Adventist hymn book. They have a lot of the same songs we do. But then when you say, well, we want to do cultural music, well, you have to think, what is their culture? Their culture is, and please, understand me, I don't want to be like, this could come across as racist, and that's not at all what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to give you a background to what even is cultural music. The culture of Africa is steeped in, um, it's like voodoo and a lot of spiritualism, and that's where their music comes from. And so when you, when you say we're going to do cultural music, if we're doing Adventist cultural music, you got to think about what does that even mean? Like, do you really want to mix the old culture with Christianity? It's, so, so yes, there's cultural music, but like Pastor Doug said, their principles are universal. Okay. There was a speaker, um, someone who's kind of studying these things in terms of the philosophical underpinning of music, and I think... A lot of times the discussion centers, or I've heard, I've heard this said that, you know, well, I like music, you know, I like this music or I like this music, it's my preference, you know. Um, and it's almost in, can become an untouchable subject because you can't, you know, you can't say anything, it's totally subjective. But um, it's very interesting because philosophically speaking, principles are, by their very nature, universal. And so you cannot say that music... Um, is somehow one area of, of of life that escapes reality. Essentially, <laughs> it's a it just it doesn't um, logically make any sense. And so, therefore, you know, um, as Christians, we have universal principles, and they they are universally applicable across all realms of our life. You know, just because we like one type of food um, doesn't mean that it's good for us. You know, if I said, well, I like you know the poisonous mushrooms. I mean, you know, that's just like you can like them, but it may not go so well for you, you know. So I think the same kind of, I mean, not to be silly, but it's, um, I don't want to, and I don't want to make, make, make fun of people who come from that perspective, but I think a lot of the, our culture and the, the way of thinking that has, you know, kind of postmodern thought that has crept into our society has really affected sometimes our understanding that 
no, there are universal kind of principles that they don't change, you know. Um, and music doesn't escape that realm of reality. Um, and this is just when you deal with these situations, because I think each of us probably will at some point, and I know my husband and I have um, with churches and whatnot, and I think the most important thing that we can do when approaching a situation like this is pray a lot. Because as easy as it is for us all to say that principles are the same no matter where you are, which I believe is true, um, there are very few things in this life that people are attached to, like their music, especially if they view it as their culture. And so you have to be very, very careful when you approach the situation and definitely pray, definitely study um, the inspiration that we have in Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible, and just ask for God to give you wisdom as you deal with these situations, because it won't be easy, and people will be upset at you. And, um, and I think we have to realize that it's not an us-against-them mentality, um, and we really need to study together and come to this understanding together. But prayer is the most important thing that you can do. Okay. There's been a lot of questions coming in about classical, romantic, Baroque composers and their appropriate use in the church setting. Are these composers, is this style of music appropriate for church? If so, why? If not, why? I'm the least qualified person here to talk about classical music. I can't read music. Uh, but... Um, the, um, I think really at the heart of that question is, is there good music that maybe um, wasn't written by a believer? Um, and I think most of us know the history that there are a lot of cultural songs. I say cultural, I'm not talking about, you know, a nation, but th there were songs that were so written by sailors that had sailor word songs that were rewritten by uh, Christians that are in our hymnal. I could give you a, like Beach Springs and a few others. I could whistle it for you. Um, the song we all know, that was Danny Boy. It was, a, a, I think, an Irish or Scottish song. It was, had nothing to do with, they sang it a lot during World War II, had nothing really to do with uh, Christianity, but it's in our hymnal now. I cannot say why he whom angels worship. You can see why I don't sing. Uh, so, um, and then A Mighty Fortress uh, was a, it was a folk song, and Martin Luther knew it was a great rousing melody. It was very catchy. He said, let's put Christian words to it and have it take off. So there obviously can be good music that um, may not have even been written by a, a Christian. And, um, and this, yeah, okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> oh, classical music. I love classical music so much. And this is a hard question because some people want to say, you know, let's, you know, and it's another one of these examples, you know, where do you approach a person and say, like, no, we're not going to do classical music in our church. And they're going to be like, what? You know, especially if they come from a church where they do. Um, again, 
like I said yesterday, why do we do music? Why are we writing music? Why are we performing music? And if you, if you think about that, then you can decide how this song is going to come across. Is this classical piece going to actually honor and glorify God, or is it going to honor and glorify how fast my fingers can go on the violin or the piano? And it may sound kind of, kind of like flippant, but I'm serious about that. Like some classical pieces have absolutely no uplifting value if it's so complicated. All you can, all the people get at the end is like, "Wow, he's been practicing that for months." You know, it's like a lot of these songs that I do for special music is like, I sit down with my brother and like, "We got to do a special music tomorrow," and and that's not. I don't recommend that, but I'm saying like, <laughs> I'm saying that. That if, if you are wanting to do it for God, then, it's, then you, it determines how, what kind of song you choose. And let's just be clear, there's some classical pieces that were written specifically with Christianity in mind, with worship in mind. I mean, a lot of Bach's pieces he wrote at the end of his stuff to the glory of God. I mean, to me, that's pretty powerful when you think of like some, such a, a world-famous artist and composer not forgetting where his talent came from. And we think of like Handel's Messiah. I mean, that is one of the most popular songs to date. I mean, every season, I know of many churches that will sing the whole thing as like a church event. I mean, that's classical music. You can't deny it. And is that wrong? I, you're going to have to really find a good argument to convince me that that's not worship music. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's a, it's a, white and black, a black and white thing, but there's principles involved, and I think... If when you think about why you're doing it, it can affect what you choose to do. I'd like to just present, this is a combination of three questions on the same topic that I think you almost touched on, James. It says, I have a friend who once played a popular classical piece during the collection of the tithe and offerings. The music was beautiful, but everyone clapped after, and it changed the mood of the worship service. Is this okay? Well, there you go. You got a result. And you have to go back and as a music committee, if you're blessed to have one at your church, decide, is that the result that we were looking for after tithes and offerings? Were they clapping because they got a hundred grand in the offering plate? Or were they clapping because the pianist was amazing? I, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a funny thing really though, because I mean, I play offerings all the time and personally, I try and keep my offering songs as simple as possible so that people are, can reflect and actually you know, think logically while they're doing their tithes and offerings. <laughs> We, we aren't marching to war with our offering. Yeah. <laughs> um, just quickly here, I just wanted to add something along these lines. Um, I think classical music um, sometimes is maybe put on a pedestal or something, and it can be misunderstood because classical music is um, by no means... Include, it includes a lot of music that we would never really want to listen to as Christians. I mean... There's many composers in, say, Russia, you know, during the, you know, time when atheism was the, was the dominant religion, who composed pieces that harked back to pagan Russian dances, you know, like Petrushka or these, um, you know, they, they're just very, you know, pagan ritual dances, very, you know, sexual and all these kinds of things, or Wagner's, you know, dance of the witch's Sabbath, you know, these kinds of pieces that, you know, the world considers great music. Um, and if you talk to any classical musician, you know, in, in a public sphere, they're going to be like, what? You don't, you know, you don't think that's great music. And it isn't. There's another piece. I just wanted to give you guys a quick listen to a tiny bit of it here, if it'll.
anyway, this is a piece. And in music history, we listen to this stuff because people look at this as like classical and intellectual music. It's called Trinity to the Victims of Hiroshima. But um, just, just as an example, classical music is by no means, you know, uh, a, a, an all-inclusive term for good music. Um, and I think we need to be, you know, cognizant of that. Um, definitely Bach wrote his music to the glory of God, and we can look to certain classical composers who have really um, been in that vein of thought, but there's also a lot of, um, um, yeah, a lot of sin and vice associated even with some of the classical um, history. So I think it's important to stay principled wherever we are again, yeah. Very briefly... We're okay. going to move on in just a minute, but go ahead. Um, so I'm going back to the next question about applause. Okay. Right? That was the question about applause yeah. after you, you the sing. The music was beautiful, in church. but everyone applauded afterwards. <clears throat> what, is this so okay? So this is my, sorry, <clears throat> my personal experience. Before I was converted, I performed as a musician um, in secular venues. And applause is like everything when you do that. Because that means they loved it, and you did it well, and you, 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 like, you nailed it. You know what I mean? And you crave that. Um, I craved that. Like, nothing is more fulfilling than when people are, like, applauding and screaming and hollering and, like, want an encore. So, fast forward to when I'm converted, and I finish singing at church, and all of a sudden people start clapping and... Like, even some kids would, like, catcall. And instantly, where is my mind? My mind isn't in worship anymore to God. It goes back to what I used to feel when I would perform without wanting to bring glory to him. And I think it's so important for us to realize, when you applaud, generally as a rule, you're not applauding because you were so moved and humbled and awed at the greatness of God. You're applauding to show your appreciation for the musician who just sang or played. And as a musician, and I know many of you are as well, it's so important for us to remember that we're not singing for the audience or the congregation. We're singing for Christ. And... Um, and I think it's important for people to realize that, too, that when they clap, they're not showing glory to God for the gift that he has given you. They're, they're showing you glory for how you, you sing. And I think, um, I know it's been a big stumbling block for me, and it instantly just kind of ruins the worship experience for me. So I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as well when maintaining a worshipful experience. Um, I'll just kind of go, it's kind of encompassing everything, but um, these two questions. In our church, um, I know that there are a lot of people who are not exposed to this type of classical music. They don't really associate classical music, any type of classical music, with worship of God. Um, just because, you know, of where they come from, what type of experience they have, and education. And, you know, it's like we, we limit ourselves to really sticking to music if it has, you know, no, if it has no words, that it has at least some sort of hymn, that it has at least some sort of, you know, so that it, people can think about it and they can go back. If, if it has words, then, you know, then we can change the, the melody or something like that. Um, because even in our case, if they played, for example, a song that was from, 
you know, uh, a Bach piece that was really meant to, to be played in church. But because our church has not had really that much experience with it, they don't have the history with it, they'll clap. They'll um, just kind of be in that place. So I think also taking consideration what kind of congregation you have, what kind of members you have, and what their background is with music, and that's really important as well. Uh, a follow-up question that's come in is, do you have a couple very brief examples on how to encourage the audience to give the glory to God no matter what music you're playing? And I, I think I'm going to start by giving a personal example, and then maybe you guys could. Um, one thing that I have done with concerts is the very first song is, first of all, we try to not keep it, to try to keep the first song from being too grandiose. Maybe save those for later in the concert. And immediately following that first song, the, the musicians on stage, we would, eventually, we would immediately you know, respond of our own accord, you know, praise the Lord, let us pray now together, before the audience has any way to respond on their own. And it set the mood for the entire program. And people realize, even when you're in churches where um, that's very common for them to do, that people realized what we wanted to give the glory to. And it set the mood for the entire concert. That was one way that helped me. Any other examples? When you have a uh, church, you can educate your church, and they all understand that when, during worship and uh, you have a program that uh, we show praise to God at the conclusion, we'll say, because uh, the song is like a prayer, you would say amen. And, um, but every now and then you'll have visitors, and it's kind of awkward at times, you know, we'll have some visitors from, you know, some evangelical church, and it's their first time there, and someone will do a beautiful special music, and they just start clapping, and then they look around, nobody else is clapping, and they feel kind of silly. <laughs> so we, we just, every now and then, you need to update educating the members said, oh, you know, just we know God is here, and we just really appreciate the gifts he's given the different people and how we can praise him. And the way we do it here is at the end of uh, a special music or something, we will just say, thank you, Lord, or amen, and and, uh, but we don't applaud. So uh, it just, it's a matter of education, I think. Moving on. All right, this is a completely change, complete change of directions. Uh, this is outside the church. I thought this was very interesting. Should Christians quit their jobs if the workplace is playing worldly music all day long? Grocery stores, restaurants, etc. Conflict in music outside of the church. I think you're going to have a hard time finding somewhere to work if you want to quit whenever you... I mean, that's just... I think, I think we also have to realize that as Christians living in, in the world, like we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world, um, it's something we're going to deal with on a daily basis. And I think you have to... I know that it's something I really struggled with after my conversion. Like, I didn't want to go to the grocery store because they played all the songs I used to listen to and I had just, like, deleted from my hard drive. Um, but by God's grace, give it a few years, I don't know any of the new songs they're playing. And he's also brought me to the point where you can kind of, I mean, I don't expect them to uphold the same standards that I believe to be important. And so you have to realize that this is the point that they're at. Now, I would say if it's a really big struggle for you and a really big temptation, like maybe that's a different situation where you would have to pray about what God wants you to do. But it's something we're going to deal with on a daily basis, and we have to be prepared to, to meet that 
and realize that the world isn't going to follow the same guidelines that we will. I'm going to interject with a follow-up question here. Do you have any practical advice on how you can encourage a better musical atmosphere with non-Christians, uh, a secular setting? Yeah, this still is connected with the first question, but it may uh, bleed over into the second one. It is very hard in our culture, as uh, my sister was saying here, to, uh, you know, you can't run away and live in a cave. Take, take my word for it. Um, and when David Livingston went to do mission work in Africa, he writes in his diary that there were very few nights when he would go to sleep and not hear the music of the villages. And if you're going to do mission work, you can't say, well, I'm not going to do mission work with these people because I'll be exposed to this, you know, wild music. You won't get anything done. Uh, I don't know about you, I like to eat at Chipotle. But I've had people call me while I was at Chipotle, and it, I have to always apologize and say, no, I'm not at a rock concert. I said, that's the music. Uh, I've actually gone to the counter before, and I tell them, I said, could you help me? I said, I'm talking to someone for dinner, and I'm hard of hearing. Can you just turn it down until I leave? And then, and they'll do that. That's like a practical way to you know, try to cope with it. But uh, it is all around us. I think that uh, one of the keys is overcome evil with good. Make sure little by little it can start changing your values, hearing it. Can I tell a real quick story? Uh, that's, it scared me. I was actually on my way to speak at a, um, an Amen conference in Palm Springs. I was late. And I got my rental car. And I'm racing out of the rental car place. And I'm putting on my seatbelt and trying to get uh, acclimated to what kind of car I'm driving. I'm adjusting the mirrors. I'm getting out on Interstate 10. And I drove that car for 10 minutes, uh, you know, looking at my GPS, trying to figure out where I was going. And it was 10 minutes before I realized that when I turned the ignition of the car on, there was awful music that was playing. I did nothing to turn it off. For 10 minutes, it didn't even occur to me. And that kind of frightened me. I thought, I got, I've gotten so used to hearing that in the background that it didn't bother me. It used to really bother me. And so we've got to be careful that we just don't get where it doesn't bother us. And pretty soon, through familiarity, you can actually embrace it. And so you overcome evil with good. You've got to be listening to the right kind of music and keep reminding yourself and compartmentalizing in your mind, this is not good. <laughs> you remind yourself. You remind your family. Um, because you're going to be exposed to it. You just got to separate it. Real quick. Really, really quick. So, uh, again, an example, I'm in medical school. And so as part of our training, we go, to the ro we go through rotations. And one of them is surgery. And so we're in the operating room. And in the operating room, the doctor is the one who's, I mean, he essentially has the veto power on what's played. And you're in the OR all day, every day, you know, essentially. Especially if you're... Um, a nurse or an anesthesiologist or an anesthetist or scrub tech or whatever your role is in the operating room and you don't have a say over as a medical student I did something kind of illegal one day and I you know in the mix on Pandora I just threw in some Tchaikovsky in there just to see what would happen you know if they would notice it and then the plastic surgeon got going on her part of the surgery and she says what is this playing? I'll have to throw my iPod in there if this doesn't get switched. And I just realized I, I didn't say anything and nobody knew who had done it. So I escaped. But um, the point is, if the 
if the environment, and, and that's a temporary situation for me as a student, but if the environment is such that you are working in that environment and you feel like it is tearing down your spirituality because there's some, you know, anyway, we won't say specialties or anything, but there's some areas of medicine that particularly can play some pretty vile stuff. Um, and if it, if that's really, you know, there's other areas of the hospital, you know, as a nurse or, you know, that you might be able to work in. And I think that's, you know, restaurants too. You mentioned, I think the fast food tends to go with the fast music. You know, you don't go to a nice Italian evening dinner and have, you know, the heavy metal blaring, you know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, the, the, part of the thing is the fast food places want you to be energetic and get in and get out because they want to get as many people through as possible, you know. Um, so, you know, if you are in restaurant, you could switch to a slower pace, you know, pray about it though. The Lord can open the door. Um, he can open the OR door and you can leave or he can open the restaurant door to another one or anyway. Yeah. I, uh, I asked a Uber driver one time if we could listen to classical music, started a whole spiritual discussion. All right, next question. Uh, and this is brief. I just want a brief answer on this. Should participants in music, instrumental or vocal, in the church or worship service be baptized Adventist Christians, or can they be people of any faith? Yes. Okay, so this is a situation where you don't know a person's heart, but um, for those of you that, and, you don't, and we have to know the context, but for those of you that were at the seminar that Caleb and I did yesterday, Ellen White is very, very, very clear that we should not be hiring non-Christian and non-Adventist um, musicians to come and do music at our church and at our meetings. And um, if you want the quote for that, come up to me after and I'll give it to you. But um, she's very very clear about that and that they need to be consecrated and godly because she talks about if they do not have the principles that they're singing about embodied and living in their hearts, that they won't be a blessing to those that are hearing. Um, so I think that's something we really need to take into consideration and that any part in the church service is an honor. And um, even though you may say, well, it could be a way to reach someone's heart, Yes, but if they're not converted, singing a song at your church most likely isn't going to convert them either. It takes a lot more than that. Um, so I know that my husband is a pastor, and we don't allow non-Adventists to sing at our church for that reason. So now, that being said, I have a friend sitting on the, the, front, the front row here, Robin, and he was attending our church for a long time and not baptized, and he would play the piano for us sometimes. Um, but he was taking Bible studies, and he was moving in the right direction, and he wasn't just coming for the sake of coming. He was coming because he wanted to learn and be baptized. So I think that's a different situation that you have to look at in a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I also want to—there's an example. There's a church actually around here, and uh, we went to their church service and their Christmas program, and they had— actually non-Adventist people, but they were interested in the church. Um, they had non-Adventist people in their choir. And by having the people in their choir, and as they were, you know, kind of interacting with them, moving forward, um, they began to, like, they be began coming to the church and actually coming to events and to the church services, even though they didn't have to sing. 
um, it just kind of exposed them where they were they were there and it wasn't you know super all the time it wasn't them singing by themselves but by interacting with the members of the choir um, they began to actually you know understand more about you know what what is seventh day adventism you know what what is this why is this church different and they really loved it and it's been in a way it's been an, a ministry so i think it really is you know case by case where you you examine it and yeah Um, I would be very reluctant to have somebody that is not a believer get up and give special music because it's the ministry of prayer and the Word. And that should be, it's a way to communicate the message and that should be done uh, with believers. As my sister mentioned here, when it comes to a choir, you've got a choir director and others that are picking what is the song, what is the music, what is the ministry of the Word, and you're inviting other people to participate with you. That's a little different. Uh, so we've always had a policy that, you know, uh, we're uncomfortable inviting someone who is not a member or believer to be um, doing the ministry of the Word through music. Um, for those of you who want to write it down, let me grab the quote here for you. Um, I have two different references that you can take down. The first one is the Review and Herald, September 27, 1892. Uh, it might be easier to find it. It's Evangelism, page 503, sorry, 508, paragraph 3. So Evangelism, page 508, paragraph 3. And then the second one is the paragraph right after that, Evangelism 508, paragraph 4. So those are the two quotes that I was um, referring to. It's talking about um, singing without spirit and understanding and also singing um, done by those whose hearts are in the effort versus not in the effort. Yeah, Evangelism 508, paragraphs 3 and 4. All right, I think we have time for just one more question. Uh, this is pertaining, I'm going to try to combine several questions here. This is pertaining to the quality of our music as far as how well it is played, how well it is shared. Um, how important is the quality of our music? And if it is important, uh, how does one uphold a standard of excellence in music, in, in the music setting, for example? How do you get people to rehearsals and practice? And how do we do that practically if it is important? Practice, practice, practice. Um, one of the, I kind of mentioned this in mind really quick, but um, as a church, I would, you know, encourage your young people, encourage people around you to take lessons, to be involved. You know, as the quality of their own practice time improves, you know, the, the music in the church also improves. And um, I've noticed it with myself. I've noticed it with other people where the things that I learn from my teacher, from my violin teacher, I'm still taking lessons. And I bring them into my ch the church service, and I can help other people, you know, kind of also raise the quality of the music. Quality of music is super important, I think. Um, we're representing Christ in our music if we're doing it for the right reasons and Christ is perfect it's we're not perfect though you have to remember that and nobody's perfect but I think 
are yeah we should strive for that i an example of this is there's a newly baptized member in our church back home and he wrote a song about his experience with our prophecy seminar that he was introduced to a church with and i remember hearing the song and i was personally i was i was very moved by the song and and you would never you would never catch me listening to the song in my car or anywhere like that but but to see him i i you didn't have to doubt for one moment that he was absolutely 100% sincere about what he was singing about was the was the quality great no it, honestly it wasn't but and and then we're we're going to get into that question you know is it just the heart no it's not just the heart but but the heart does have a huge part to play and this guy had written this song with a personal encounter with Jesus and it totally shone through in his playing and his singing I agree with the other comments, but I would also say that in reality, if you have a church with uh, 50 people in it, you may not have any prodigies. Does that mean you have no music? And so, you know, some things that might not be special music in a larger church where you've got more talent and a bigger pool to choose from, and you've got a little church, you've got one person that plays a piano there. Uh, so you just say praise the Lord and let you know, we'll make a joyful noise. <laughs> so you just you, you take what you have to work with, and, and I, thought, I think it's also important that um, children be invited to come up and share. They're not always going to be you know really gifted. I think our church is real good in um, in Granite Bay that we let the children from time to time participate in the special music. We don't expect uh, you know it to be concert performance quality. Uh, but they know they're part of it, and it just it, it raises everybody's desire to uh, to do better, so that they can participate. Amen. All right. I think we need to wrap up. It's time for outreach. Thank you, all of you, for your questions. I apologize. I did we, not, we did not get to many of your questions. If you want to come forward and ask us after now, you're more than welcome to do so. We'll stay as long as we can. Uh, we apologize for that. Uh, thank you, Pastor Doug, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Um, let us pray together. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who sings and that you sing over us with joy. We ask that you would be with us as we go from this place and we continue to try to better hear the, heaven, the music of heaven and to draw our musical tastes and our musical offerings to you closer to the standard and the, the beauty of heaven's music. Pray that this is our prayer. We ask you to, to help us on our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.